Okay, let's just uh, bow our hearts as we come humbly before God's wonderful word together, shall we? Well, Lord, we do submit ourselves now to your word. Lord, we recognize that your word is truth. And Father, your word may differ from our own opinions on things. And Lord, where that is the case, Father, we pray that you would mold us and shape us and cause us to conform to your word and not try to conform your word to the things that we would like. Father, challenge us this morning. Speak to us, we pray. Father, we thank you for this precious gift you've given us of your word, that Lord is here to instruct us and edify us, and most importantly, to reveal to us our Savior. We thank you, Lord, that in the volume of the book it is written of Jesus. And so, Lord, we just pray we would see him as we study these uh, passages and these books this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, First and Second Corinthians. Great uh, book, so much doctrinally in here. Um, just to give you a bit of a refresh and reminder, in the New Testament, of course, we've got the Gospels, then we've got the book of Acts, kind of that Pentateuch, as it's been uh, described by some of the New Testament, the first five books. Uh, we've got seven churches that were written to by Paul, starting with Romans that we looked at last week. Today we're going to look at First and Second Corinthians, obviously one church there. But then the church at Galatia, the Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and the Thessalonians. Um, and then we also have those amongst that are referred to as the prison epistles, so Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians that Paul uh, wrote whilst in prison. Uh, and then there's the pastoral epistles, the ones that Paul writes to Timothy, to Titus, and also to Philemon. Uh, very much from a pastoral perspective, uh, caring for them and so on. Um, we'll see that in a few weeks when we get there. Um, interestingly, when we look at the, the breakdown of the, the writings of Paul, the, the things he wrote for us, um, we've got Romans, which deals with doctrine. Um, and really the main theme there is salvation. Um, first and 2 Corinthians are books of reproof, correction, or sorry, instructions rather. And then Galatians is correction. And then we have the same pattern repeated. Ephesians is doctrinal. Philippians is reproof. Colossians, correction. And then once again, Thessalonians is doctrinal. I'm not sure whether that was intended um, by Paul, but certainly we see the Holy Spirit had an intention. Um, and the doctrinal books that we have i romans ephesians and thessalonians deal with the three major subjects that all christians really should be very well acquainted with and that is of course salvation we should understand salvation the mechanics of it what christ has done how we're to be saved the book of ephesians deals with the church uh, sometimes referred to as ecclesiology the study of the church and thessalonians deals with eschatology or the study of last things so all of those things uh, we should have an understanding of and we'll look over the coming weeks as we go through some of these uh, the key points that are there now paul I obviously went a number of times um, to Corinth, three times we have recorded in Scripture, but seemingly we have four letters. Now, we've only got two, of course, that we have recorded uh, in Scripture. Now, the first visit was when the church at Corinth was founded. Um, but we have reference to the previous letter. Um, now, Chloe's household visit Paul with a letter from Corinth. We'll look at this in, in kind of a map so you can see where all these things are taking place in a moment. Um, and that gives rise to the first letter that we have, the first Corinthians, which really is the second letter that Paul seems to write to them. Uh, then Paul visits them. It's a painful visit by all accounts. Um, and that then leads to 
what's referred to as the severe letter, um, which seems to have been lost. But we have reference to that. Um, Titus reports back to Paul that they'd received that very well. And as a result, it brought about the changes that Paul was looking for, uh, the repentance and so on. Um, and that then leads to what we have as Second Corinthians, which really seems to be the fourth uh, letter uh, that we have. So um, just to, to clarify, if you're looking in Scripture and you see these references, it would appear that there's actually four letters in total. Of course, two of them we have recorded in Scripture. And finally, that brings on Paul's third visit after that, uh, supposedly, or after Second Corinthians. Um, in terms of where Paul uh, visits Corinth in his journeys, well, it's part of the third missionary journey uh, that we find this all start to uh, unfold. Uh, so the third missionary journey of Paul, uh, he leaves from Antioch, which has been the base, of course, for the Christian church, and moved from Jerusalem down to Antioch, travels off through Cilicia, uh, traveling through the churches that he planted at Derby, Lystra, Iconium, Antioch, uh, off up to Ephesus. From there, he travels on to Troas. Um, and then from there he heads across to the mainland. And Paul plans to, to go to Macedonia. He sends Timothy uh, and Rashid as the head of them uh, that they might visit Corinth. Paul's worried about immorality in the church there, uh, we're told. Um, three members of the Corinthian church bring a letter to Paul. This is one I mentioned a moment ago. It's got lots of questions uh, and the problems then are greater than Paul had previously thought. Well, Paul then writes and sends 1 Corinthians tackling some of those problems. So after that, Paul makes this journey. He hurries across to Corinth. Um, the visit, apparently, as I said a moment ago, is very painful for everyone. Um, Paul is very severe uh, in his um, addressing the situation. It's something that has to be dealt with. Uh, but then Paul returns to Ephesus and rewrites this, as I said a moment ago, severe letter to them. Titus is the one that takes that to Corinth. Paul arranges to meet Titus at Troas, urgently to get news of the situation. Um, but seemingly, for some reason, um, Titus is delayed uh, getting there. So Paul goes to Troas. Um, he's worried about this, this letter. Was it too harsh? Titus doesn't appear, uh, doesn't arrive there. Um, so Paul then goes off to Macedonia in search of him. <clears throat> and then, as a result of that, Paul ends up travelling back down to Corinth for his second uh, visit to them there. Uh, while he's there, this time he encourages the church, he collects money for the saints at Jerusalem, um, and finally he meets up with Titus and understands that the, the, the letter previously been sent had received, been received well. Um, and that brings about the writing of 2 Corinthians, uh, which is comparatively, compared to 1 Corinthians, full of joy and encouragement and so on. There's a few issues that Paul addresses, and then that leads way to the third visit of Paul uh, following after that. So just to give you some of the, the breakdown of where these things occurred. So in terms of the breakdown of the book, the first six chapters really, the main theme there is that schisms are wrong. Divisions within the church should not occur. They do occur, but they shouldn't occur. And we see contrasted, of course, in amongst that, that God's wisdom is so different to the wisdom of the world. Um, we have this strange term used, the foolishness of God. Um, of course, it's an oxymoron, it's a self-contradictory statement, because God, there is no foolishness in God, but God chooses the wisdom of the world. Um, we'll look at these scriptures in just a moment. We also find that, Human teachers are just stewards of God's wisdom and should be. Um, we also see in chapters 7 through to 11 um, the replies that Paul gives to some of the problems that had previously been raised. 
um, marriage, uh, meats, what they should or shouldn't eat, uh, the Lord's Supper and so on, how they were to do those things. Paul addresses in those chapters. And then Paul from chapter 12 through to 14 addresses spiritual gifts. Chapter 15 is our chapter on the resurrection. And then chapter 16 we see this collection, as we mentioned a moment ago, for the saints in Jerusalem. So that's a, an overview. What we'll do, we'll just go through as we've done in previous weeks and look at some of the highlights. Now, in chapter 1, just picking up verse 10, Paul says there, I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. Now, I remember years ago, uh, I was asked to, to lead a, a, a minister's fraternal number of churches involved. And um, at that particular time, the church, uh, the Calvary back in Deal that I was part of, we were asked to host the, the, the meeting. Um, and so I just used this scripture and I said, look, you know, although we have different you know, elements to our, our traditional backgrounds and so on, and you know, part of uh, different denominations you know the good thing is that we've got things that we have in common things that we can agree on well you wouldn't believe how much controversy that caused and you know it, it was really sad because uh, you know in a sense what we that came back was well we really shouldn't be talking about that we shouldn't discuss doctrine we shouldn't talk about this because it will divide us it's like hang on, haven't we got the word of god isn't that the basis for what we believe why can't we just stick with the word of god now i accept there will be some things that will differ on but surely there's enough that we've got in common. And Paul says here to the Corinthians, the same thing. Because the same kind of little fractions had, had occurred there. Somebody was following one person, some another, and, and so on. And, and Paul just says, look, you know, he, he, in fact, the way he starts, I beg you, I beseech you, brethren. And it's not just a flippant comic. It's by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you all speak the same thing. That there be no divisions among you. This is the way it should be within the church. You know, if we have differences of opinion on certain issues in scripture or whatever, we should come back to scripture. I'm always very worried when I meet a Christian who, differ, who has a different view or opinion and is not prepared to sit down with the word of God and study it. That just, just rings alarm bells with me. That You can have somebody that has a different view, but won't go back to the Word of God. It just tells me that they've got their own opinion, their own agenda. Because it's quite simple. If we look at something in Scripture and we, the two of us have different views or different opinions on something, well then let's go back to Scripture, because there's three options. One, I could be right. One, you could be right. Or two, we could both, or three, rather, we could both be wrong. And we need to grow together and we need to be open with each other and allow the Holy Spirit to teach us. One of the most amazing things I found in my Christian walk is that when you meet Christians who have studied scripture from the word of God, not from other people's commentaries or views or opinions, but from the word of God, there is an incredible unity. That within literally two or three minutes of a conversation, you could talk about almost any controversial subject in scripture and you'd have unity. I don't mean an agreement to work together or whatever. I mean real unity through the Spirit. It's incredible how the Holy Spirit teaches us individually. You know, and we should all be open. If we have a difference on something, we should sit down together. We should be open enough to say, well, let's just spend five minutes, get a cup of coffee, cup of tea, we'll sit down, we'll open the Word of God together. And we'll let the Word of God instruct us and teach us. Well, that brings real strength uh, within a body of believers. And 
I encourage you to do that. If there's any occasion that you know there's some disagreement, well, let's study together because we're not interested in our opinion, surely. We're interested in what the Word of God says. And Paul says here that we should be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Well, again, I mentioned a moment ago the foolishness uh, issue. Just picking up verse 18 of chapter 1. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. You know, God chooses the weak things of the world, we're told. And we're told that the Jews require a sign. The Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Unto the Jews a stumbling block, unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, we're told. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. And then Paul says, For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised as God chosen. Yes, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are. And this is the reason that no flesh should glory in his presence. You see, God has reserved the glory for himself. And none of us will get to heaven and will be able to boast about our own wisdom in discovering the plan, the way. It's all been revealed to us by God's grace. It's all foolishness from a human perspective. You see, God is the only one that deserves the glory and the honour. And God has chosen the weak things, the foolish things, to save a family on a boat. It's foolish to the world's way of thinking. To choose just one man, Abraham, and through him make a nation, through whom he would send a a, a saviour for the whole world. It doesn't make sense to the world. But of course the glory of God is in all of these things. And ultimately, that God would manifest himself in human flesh and be born as a baby. The weak, small, helpless child that we read of in our nativity and our Christmas stories and so on. But of course it's scripture, that's what we're told God did. It doesn't make sense to the world and yet God has chosen these things so that no flesh should glory in his presence. It's not about us or our ability or our wisdom. In 2 Corinthians, I'm just going to pull some verses. uh, The first two there, Paul says, And I, brethren, when I came unto you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now Paul making reference here to his first visit to Corinth. And he'd just come from Athens. He'd been there amongst all the Greek philosophers. He'd been reasoning with them and having these logical arguments and debates and so on. And we are told that there was uh, some that wanted to hear him again on these matters. But we're not really told of any real fruit from his time in Athens. And so, no doubt, on this journey that Paul has travelled down from Athens, down to Corinth, he'd been thinking. And when he gets to Corinth, you know what he says? It's not about my ability to win an argument. It's not about how clever I am, or how intellectual, how eloquent my speech is. You know, this is all about God. 
I can do nothing without God's grace. And people are saved not because I can win an argument. Because if that were the case, then salvation would only be for those that could be intellectually convinced. That's not how it is. And Paul says, when I came to you, I realized that actually none of those things are going to save somebody. Now, don't get me wrong, because elsewhere in Scripture we're given a strong basis that we should have a reason. We should have a logical defense for what we believe. Nothing wrong with any of those things. But the preaching of the gospel, as we've just seen, is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those that are saved... It's the power of God. And Paul says, you know, I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. That is the, the big thing. That's what we preach. That is, in essence, the gospel. Just simply that Jesus Christ died for our sins. He was crucified. He was died. He was buried. He rose again the third day. You know, why are we Christians? Because of Jesus. Because Jesus was crucified and rose again. And Paul will make that very clear as we look into chapter 15. Now, one of my um, little bugbears, to share this with you, um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. And this really does frustrate me. I just try and remain calm this morning. But we read here, but as it is written. Now, here Paul is going to quote from the prophet Isaiah, from Isaiah 64, verse 4 and 5. But as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard neither has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him and most Christians at that point shut the book and go wow we don't know all these mysteries we don't know about you know it's not even entered into our heart we don't know but please read on because then we're told but God has revealed them to us by his spirit there's some lovely worship songs that are written about around verse 9 we don't know, you know, wonderful things that God has done. We don't understand them. No, no, look, verse 10 says, but God has revealed them to us by his spirit. And then we're told, for the spirit searches all things. Yes, the deep things of God. The Holy Spirit searches the deep things of God and reveals them to us. Verse 10, so neglected. One of the most neglected verses, I think, in the Bible. Everybody kind of understands and probably has memorized to a point, verse 9. But... The things that were concealed, that Isaiah records, had been concealed at that point, have now been revealed to the church by God's Holy Spirit. Chapter 3, the BAFTAs, if I may. This is the Born Again Foundational Thanksgiving Awards. Okay, This is for those who are born again. It is the foundation. And it's Thanksgiving because this is something that we will have an opportunity to thank our Saviour. But these are awards that are given to us. Let's pick up verse 11. For other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And by the way, Jesus Christ is the foundation of the church, not Peter, not any of the apostles. Jesus Christ is the foundation. And then Paul says, Now if any man build upon this foundation... And we're told what we can build with. Gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble. Every man's work shall be made manifest. For the day shall declare it. Because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. So, I want to just draw attention here. Every man's work. And we're talking about the day. We'll talk about this day in a moment. It's going to declare it. And once again, because this fire is going to try every man's work. Now just underline the fact that you are saved by grace, 
not by works. So what is this referring to? Well, <clears throat> there's two types of materials that are listed here, of course. We've got wood, hay and stubble. They're all burnt up by fire. And really it's analogous to sowing to the flesh, having treasure on earth. The things that you do now as a Christian that have no spiritual or eternal value whatsoever. And then you've got the gold, silver, precious stones. Those things are all purified through fire. That's sowing to the spirit, putting our treasure in heaven. That's doing things for the sake of the kingdom. And we could spend the whole morning just discussing these two things. Looking at things in our life that really are just wood, hay and stubble. No eternal benefit. Just purely for the flesh, for here, for now. And then you've got the gold, silver, precious stones. The things that you are doing for God. The ministry that God has called you to. Exercising the gifts that God has given you. And we're told if any man's work abide, which he has built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. Now notice that, a reward is promised here. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. So first of all, we need to understand that this passage is talking about works and about rewards for those works. You see, we have a choice how we live. And really this comes back to that which we see in Galatians, but the law of sowing and reaping. Depends on what you sow, depends on what you reap. We understand that just purely from an agricultural perspective. And we're going to be rewarded accordingly. If we sow to the Spirit, well, we reap everlasting life. If we sow to the flesh, we're just going to reap corruption. But notice, it's not an issue of salvation. Salvation is not being discussed here. Because we're quite clearly told um, that regardless of whether your works are burnt up and you suffer lost, you will still be saved. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Now, we'll talk about that in just a second. But, I mean, for many years, I kind of paraphrase this by the skin of your teeth. You'll be saved, yet so as by fire. In other words, you'll just about make it. Just about saved? No. And it actually struck me, even just, just recently, and we've kind of been going through Hebrews Bible study, but later uh, in, in Hebrews we're going to see this echo, but already we've seen this comment and the reference to so great a salvation. There's no just being saved. Salvation is a, an amazing, wonderful, totally complete thing that God has done for us. For Once we repent and we put our trust in Jesus, our Lord and Saviour, we are saved. So this reference here, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire, isn't saying you're just going to get into heaven by the skin of your teeth, because it's not based upon anything you can do. It's really very, very clear. See, the measurement is on that which accompanies salvation, the works that we do. Let's pick up in Hebrews chapter 6. Let's read a few verses there. We're told, For the earth which drinks in the rain that comes often upon it and brings forth herb, meets uh, for them by whom it is dressed, receives blessing from God. But that which bears thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. Interesting, as in, in the context of what we've just looked at, we've got two things here. That which receives blessing of God, that which is effectively destroyed and burnt up. Very similar. Verse 9 carries on. But beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation. Interesting phrase, isn't it? Things that accompany salvation. Things that go along with. Though we thus speak. For God is not unrighteous 
to forget your work and labour of love which you have showed toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. Writer to the Hebrews says, God is going to remember the things you've done, the work that you have done as Christians. And you will be rewarded accordingly. And those things accompany your salvation. In 2 Peter 1.11 we read, For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. Peter here referencing that we can have an abundant entrance. Now the opposite is true that we could have not an abundant entrance. This isn't talking about salvation. It's talking about the things that accompany, the rewards that we will get for our works. John says, look to yourselves that we lose not those things that we have wrought or we've worked for, but that we receive a full reward. Once again, not talking about salvation, talking about the rewards that come from our labor as believers. Now, we are called to good works. It's expected of us as believers We will be rewarded according to our works. But again, it has nothing to do with salvation, which is entirely by God's grace. Our good works are an outward demonstration of the faith that we have and are the evidence that we are saved. James makes that point very, very clearly. Jesus in Matthew 7, 20 spoke of knowing people by the fruit they produce. Let's just talk about this day for a moment because we're told this day should declare. Which day are we talking about? Well, we're talking about the day of Christ. And that's in contrast, of course, to the day of the Lord. Because in Scripture we'll find this phrase, the day of the Lord, referred to a number of times. The day of the Lord is in reference to the time of Jacob's trouble. Daniel's 70th week, or the time of tribulation that is coming upon the earth. That's the day of the Lord. But in the New Testament, again, something that was previously hidden is now revealed. And there'll be another day. This is the day of Christ. And you can see the scriptures listed there for you. A number of times this is is, is referenced. It's a very specific day. It's not the day of the Lord. It's another day that is being referenced here. Where? Well, the location clearly is going to be heaven. Matthew 6 makes that clear. 2 Corinthians 5 also speaks of this arriving at the judgment seat or the beamer seat of Christ. And it has to occur prior to the second coming. For a number of reasons, a number of scriptures we can cite. Because at the second coming, Christ will return with the saints. But this does occur after the rapture. After Christ has returned, as Jesus himself promised in John chapter 14, verse 3, that he would go and prepare a place for us. He would come again, receive us to himself, and take us back to that place. And in that place would be where we receive these rewards, the treasure in heaven. That in Matthew 6 we were told to lay out. So when we arrive back in heaven after the rapture, at some point, no doubt very shortly after we arrive back there, there'll be this award ceremony. Just jumping forward into 2 Corinthians, we'll look at it now because it's part of the same theme. It says, therefore, we must all appear before the judgment seat, the beamer seat, literally in the Greek, of Christ. That everyone may receive things done in his body according to that he has done, whether it be good or bad. Well, clearly this judgment is about works, not about salvation, not about anything to do with uh, our being made right with God. Our righteousness is a gift from God. But the works are what we've done. It's how you're living at the moment. It's whether you're doing things for God, whether things of God are more important to you. It's the desires of your heart, ultimately, that will then produce whatever fruit 
Those desires are, are destined to produce in your life. If your desires are godly desires, they'll produce that godly fruit. That'll have an eternal value. If not, obviously the opposite is true. You see, we're going to be judged according to our works. Now again, a sin was paid for in full. At Calvary can't stress that enough. And there are, just to mention as well, various judgments in Scripture. There's the judgment seat of Christ. That's what we're looking at here. That's what 1 Corinthians chapter 3 addresses. But there's also the great white throne judgment. That will occur right at the end. Right at the end of time, as it were. After the millennial reign of Christ, there will be the great white throne judgment. That's the one that most people refer to as Judgment Day. Most people are very ignorant of these terms and they use them uh, sometimes interchangeably, um, not correctly. But um, There's the judgment of the nations, another judgment that's specifically told of in Scripture, where the Lord will separate the sheep and the goats. But if you read the context of Matthew 25, we're looking at the nations of the earth. And it's dependent upon how they've treated Israel. There's also the judgment of the great whore, this false religious system that's alluded to in Revelation 17 and 18. But interestingly, 1 Peter 4.17 tells us that judgment is to begin with the house of God. In a sense, the season of judgment, when these judgments begin, it will start at the house of God. But the wonderful thing for us, our judgment won't be uh, a telling off, a condemning or whatever else. It will be a reward for that which we've done. 2 Corinthians 5, 10-15. Let me just read this, these verses. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, according to that he has done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. For we commend not ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf that you may have somewhat to answer them which glory in appearance and not in heart. For whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God, or whether we be sober, uh, it is for your cause. For the love of Christ constrains us. And this is starting to get to the, the nitty gritty of it. It's the love of Christ. That's why we do what we do. That's why these good works happen. That's why we desire to do them. It's because of our love for him. For the love of Christ constrains us. Because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. See, this isn't again addressing salvation specifically. This is talking about how we're going to live and why we're going to live that way. We're going to live for Christ because of the love that he has for us and the love in return that we have for him. And that's why we will do these good works. You see, we're all going to stand at this beam of seats and we're going to be rewarded. And what Christ has done is our motivation. So, this judgment seat of Christ is an award ceremony for the saints. Sin is not part of the equation. How we've lived as Christians will be the critical issue. And our deeds will be judged, whether good or bad. Salvation, of course, is assured. But the rewards are not. I always find this a bit of a, a challenging thing because it's a little bit like arriving at a party and everybody in front of you in the line in the queue has got brought a, pe- a present for the host. And you're there and you kind of, you've got nothing. How would you feel? If we're very embarrassed, well, how would you feel standing before the throne and everybody else has brought offerings, gifts, things, gold, silver, precious stones, and you're there with wood, hay, and straw? You've got nothing to show. You know it's going to be tried by the fire. 
How will it be to stand before the one who saved you, who shed his blood, that you can have eternal life? I think, well, you know what? I knew a lot about what was going on in the world. I knew a lot about whatever. But I really didn't know as much about God as I should have done. I didn't really know as much about the Bible as I should have done. You see, where our treasure has been is going to be the key. The same theme, but just jumping forward to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul says, I therefore run so not as uncertainty, so, so fight I not as one that beats the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. What is Paul saying? Is he saying he could lose his salvation? No, not at all. The, the word that's used here, this uh, adokimos, is, is rejected. I'll be rejected, uh, uh, reprobate, or have nothing is the idea. Paul is saying that, you know, even for Paul himself, I can preach to others. And this morning as a pastor, I can preach to you, I can speak to you. I could end up with nothing. You could end up with nothing if ultimately in our hearts we're not doing that which we do for the glory of God. Paul is saying, I could be there before the throne and have nothing. And Paul's saying, I can't bear the thought of that. <clears throat> There's specific rewards that are mentioned, those being crowns in the New Testament. It's the crown of incorruption, we just mentioned that. Uh, the crown of life, crown of rejoicing, crown of glory, and the crown of righteousness. These crowns are all promised to believers in the New Testament. Very quickly, because it's part of Corinthians, we'll read this one for you. First Corinthians 9. Know you not that they which run in a race all run, but one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Paul is saying, you know, live the Christian life like you really mean it and you want to win. Be serious about your faith. Be disciplined about the time you, you put aside for Bible study, for fellowship, for prayer. As Jared was encouraging you earlier, try and come along to Bible studies if it's at all possible. Why? Well, for two reasons. One, Three reasons. One, because it's good to fellowship. And even more so as we see the day approaching. Secondly, because you need to grow. You need to learn and the more time you spend in God's word, the better. And thirdly, because it's really good that you come and encourage others as well. You see, every one of you has a ministry of encouragement or should. Some of those ministries maybe could be tweaked a bit. The reference here about running, it was very much the, in Corinth we had the Isthmus Games, um, referred to from this individual, um, Isthmus. Um, he was an individual, and, and this, these games were, were um, conducted, it was a bit like the Olympic Games, a uh, very similar type of thing, uh, similar era and so on. And the rewards were these laurel wreath crowns that were given. Paul makes the point, he says, Every man that strives for mastery is temperate in all things. Now, they do it, sort of the world, they're running the, the, all the effort the athletes put in, they do it for a corruptible crown, but we for an incorruptible. I mean, you think of the athletes that train for the Olympics, the work they put in, how they had to keep their bodies fit and healthy. And you think about us. You know, we're not asking you to go down the gym and so on, but we are saying that we should get spiritually fit. Just very briefly, the crown of life is mentioned in James and it's promised to those that love him and those that endure temptation. That's the key there. And First Corinthians 10, we read this scripture this morning. No temptation has overtaken you. 
But such as is common to man. God is faithful. He will not suffer you to be tempted above that which you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. The crown of rejoicing is in 1 Thessalonians 2, and we're told that this crown is given to those who love seeing the lost found. Those who, the crown of rejoicing is given to those who, in fact, let me just read this. For what is our hope or crown or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? For you are our glory and joy. Paul's speaking to those who he has brought to know him. This joy of seeing the lost found. The crown of glory in First Peter is promised to those in positions of authority within a church environment. And we're admonished to feed the flock of God and so on. But we promise this crown. Verse 4 says, When the chief shepherd shall appear, you shall receive a crown of glory that fades not away. And then finally, the crown of righteousness in Second Timothy. I love this. It's promised to those that love his appearing. I think it's really interesting. What are we to do with all these crowns? Are we going to spend eternity bragging about how well we've done? I got three crowns. <laughs> you know, is, is that how it's going? No, it's not going to be like that, because in Revelation we're told that round about the throne with these twenty-four elders, they sat upon the seats, and in this white cloak, and then we're told they have crowns of gold upon their heads. These are the elders we're told of in Revelation, but they're representative of every kindred, nation, tongue, people, so on. They're redeemed by the blood. Clearly, these are believers. And representative being 24 of the whole. And we see that a number of times. In First Chronicles, David divides the priesthood into 24 courses. The revelation here, this 24 representative of the whole. 24 hours in the day, that's the whole day and so on. And we're told that when the beasts, the living creatures in heaven, give glory to God, to Jesus, the one that sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever... Verse 10, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne. Do you realize the rewards that you get, you will give them back to Jesus. The more you do now, the more you can give back when we get there. From my reading of scripture, this is the only opportunity you and I will get to give something to Jesus, to say thank you. To say thank you. That he shed his blood for us. So the challenge is, are you going to be there on that day and have nothing to give because you were sowing to the flesh? Or are you going to be there on that day and say, Jesus, I love you. And that love be demonstrated by the way that we've lived our lives. So our response to these crowns, the crown of incorruption is a disciplined Christian life, no compromise. The crown of life is overcoming temptations. The crown of rejoicing is about winning souls for Christ. The crown of glory for those that are faithful in ministry. And the crown of righteousness for those that are looking for his coming. And by the way, I think that's so significant. Because if you are looking for his coming, you will be living a righteous, holy, set apart, sanctified life. I've said this before. When I was younger... Uh, in the kind of my latter teenage years, mum and dad sometimes went away, sometimes for business, sometimes went away for a week on holiday or whatever. And they leave the house to me and Katie, my sister, and there were occasions that we got to, you know, the Friday they were coming home on the Saturday, and we'd look at the big pile of washing up and clothes strewn all over the place and just the mess everywhere. And Katie and I were kind of like, we'd better sort this out, hadn't we? You know, and it's kind of like, this is the moment, we've got to get it ready because they're coming back. 
You know, your house will be in order if you know Christ is returning. We've got to live like we really believe Jesus is coming back at any moment. And that really there shouldn't be anything in our lives that could be censored. Okay, let's just, there's just a few scriptures from these verses. But in chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians, we're told to judge nothing before the time. And God is going to make the things clear when we get to that point. We're told about the, uh, the hidden things, the counsels of the hearts. And we're told in regard to those things, we're not to judge things. We're not to judge people's hearts. We don't know people's hearts. But interestingly, we jump into chapter 5, and it starts by Paul saying there in chapter verse 3, For verily as absent in body, but present in spirit, um, have judged already. What Paul is saying well, in chapter 4, don't judge. Then chapter 5 he says you should judge. How are we to understand these scriptures? Well, the situation in chapter 5 is about this man that's involved in an immoral relationship. Paul makes the point, you know, we shouldn't tolerate those things. We shouldn't accept it. Because... He says, know you not that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? You know, back in the Old Testament, the leper had to be removed from the camp or the whole camp will be infected. And within a body of believers, if there's somebody that's involved in some sin that's become known and apparent, that individual must be removed for the sake of the body or the whole body can become infected and corrupted as a result. Again, this reference, Paul speaking about judging he says, I wrote unto you in an epistle not to keep company with fornicators. And he says, but yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world. He said, I don't think, I'm not saying that you shouldn't spend time or be around the people of this world. Because, as he says, for then you must needs go out of the world. You know, you'd have to leave the world if you were going to be away from them. Because in part of our daily lives, we will mix with fornicators, the people who are covetous, extortioners, idolaters. But verse 11 says, But now I have written unto you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer, drunkard, extortioner, and so on. He says, Don't even eat, don't fellowship with that kind of person. Paul says, For what have I to do to judge them who are are without? Do uh, Do not ye judge them that are within, but them that are without, God judges. So Paul says, Look, It's not our place to judge those who are in the world. God is going to deal with them. God is going to judge them. But it is our responsibility to judge within a body of believers. So how do we reconcile those two scriptures? Firstly, don't judge. In chapter 4. Well, that's the internal. We're not to judge the intent. Because only God can see the heart. But we are to judge that which is external. The actions. Because it's for the health of the body and also because we're called to be ambassadors. We have a standard that God expects of us if we are born again. So both of these things apply. There is a time to judge and there is a time not to judge. We're not to judge the intents, the thoughts of the heart. That God will judge and will reveal on that day. But we are to judge the things that are external, the actions, the things that we can observe here and now. Chapter 6 through 8 really deals with this whole issue of license and liberty. You know, as you grow as a Christian, you realize there's a lot of things that you can do that aren't prohibited from you, but actually they could cause somebody else to stumble. And Paul says, don't go down that road. Don't do anything that causes another brother or sister in Christ to stumble. Don't let your liberty, the freedom you have in Christ, be something that causes somebody else to struggle. Paul also talks about those who are married, 
Being as if you were unmarried. You know, it's not, not wrong to be married, it's not wrong to be not married. But whichever state you're in, we should be living our lives for God's glory. Chapter 9, Paul deals with this whole issue of uh, those who are in ministry being remunerated for that which they do. And he uses this phrase, Jesus quotes as well, don't muzzle the ox. Yes, pastors and so on, they're referred to in scriptures as oxes. But what Paul is saying is, it's right and proper for those who serve in ministry to be remunerated. This is the whole basis of the way the church started. The, the church and those that were receiving income from their own work and whatever would, would give that money for the ministry, that the word of God can go forward. Chapter 10, we could spend a long time on this. We're just going to look at a couple of verses. But it just talks about lessons from history. Paul says, Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant. How that our fathers, looking back to the Jews, were under the cloud. This is talking about the time when they left Egypt and all passed through the sea. All baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea and did all eat the same spiritual meat. Speaking of the manna. And did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. You see, they had an incredible beginning. This amazing deliverance from bondage. They passed through the waters to new life, sustained by the bread of life, watered by the water of life. All symbolic of Christ, of course. How could anything possibly go wrong? And yet it did. Because then we're told, but with many of them, God was not well pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Notice it was many of them that were overthrown by these things. And the passage goes on to list a whole bunch of mistakes they made. And we're told to learn from those lessons. A great list is given to us of the way that we should live. And don't be so arrogant to think that we can't stumble too. Chapter 11 moves on and we have lessons on authority. We have God's order. It's God, Jesus, man, woman. That's the order that we give. A lot of people read 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 11 and they think that it's talking about hair and hairstyles and all sorts of other things. Because it's a ref- there's a reference there about men having long hair and so on. Well, you know what? Samson had long hair. And he was told to have long hair by God. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The vow of a Nazarite was to let your hair grow. So the passage in Corinthians is not dealing with the length of your hair. Okay? It's dealing with God's order. In fact, Paul makes it very clear in the opening verses that he's talking about, he's, he uses hair as an analogy, but he's talking about that which is on your head, as in your covering. Now, very simply, let me ask you the question, is Jesus less than God? Well, no, of course not. So let me then ask you the question, is woman any less than man? And all the ladies will quite firmly say, of course, no. And we know that's true. You know, the point here is that Jesus is not less than God and woman is not less than man. But for the sake of the order, Jesus submitted himself to the Father. You see, God knows the right way that we should live our lives, the right order with any family arrangement or whatever else. God reveals his order in his word. Our lives are a lot simpler if we just trust him. You know, it doesn't look good if you have a woman who is dominating her husband, who always speaks for him in public. That's not good. 
But equally, it doesn't look good if you've got a husband who is too timid to actually stand up and be the man that God has called him to be. You know, this is a big subject, a big issue, and you know, by God's grace, maybe we'll come back and revisit and study some of these things in depth. But you know, this isn't in any way belittling women. Because the challenge upon a man to love his wife as Christ loved the church, wow, what a challenge that really is. Again, we could look some other time. In chapter 12 through 14, we just address the whole issue with spiritual gifts. And we're told in verse 40, really the summary of it, is let all things be done decently in order. You know, spiritual gifts and things that are great, they have a place, they have a purpose, but let it be done decently and in order. Okay, they shouldn't be things that take over, that uh, in any way distract from that which God is doing. They should be part of the work and the ministry that God is building up and working within any fellowship of believers. Chapter 15, of course, is the foundation of our faith. And it begins by this declaration of what the gospel is. In the first four verses, Paul states there that this is the gospel. And he says that it's that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. It's so simple. The end of this chapter, this great resurrection chapter, as Jared read earlier, Paul said... Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trump shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. You know, these bodies are going to go. We're going to get new bodies fit for eternity. And we're told, so when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? You see, Jesus has defeated death. You know, people come and say, you know, that, well, you know, talking of God, well, why have we still got hunger in the world? Well, Jesus didn't come to solve the problem of world hunger. And people say, well, why have we still got sickness if there's a God? Jesus didn't come to solve the problem of sickness, but he did come to solve the problem of death. And that affects everybody. And that problem has been solved. There is a remedy. The final chapter of 1 Corinthians is all about this serving through giving. And then finally, the greetings. Now, I'm not going to go through 2 Corinthians in the same way. I'm just going to give you the overview very quickly. And I encourage you to take this and study yourself. Just a very quick overview. The first five chapters, really Paul is giving an account of his ministry, his motive and his message. Then Paul appeals to those that he's brought to know the Lord. The spiritual things and material things he, he speaks them of. And then finally, Paul answers the critics. Now, interestingly, the critics, the Titus have brought this disturbing report that there have been those attacking Paul's character and so on. And what Paul is forced to do is to respond for the health of the gospel and for this fellowship, explaining that he was right to be doing what he was doing. He was being put in his position by God. It's been said that this is an impassioned self-defense of a wounded spirit to an erring and ungrateful children. Well, Paul certainly gives that defense. Now, this is the, the... what I'd like you to take away and look at. Chapter 1 is the yes and amen, the promises of God. Chapter 2 speaks of the fact that we should be a sweet saver. You know, around the world, those that we mix and mingle with, 
There should be something different about us. I love the quote, somebody went up to somebody once and said, are you a Christian? They said, well, that's for you to tell me. I think that's quite a good way of looking at that. Chapter 3, we're being changed to glory. The work that Christ is doing in us. Chapter 4, we're reminded that Satan is, for now, the God of this world. Chapter 5, we're reminded that we are ambassadors. We have a job to do. We are to represent our king in a foreign realm. Chapter 6, whatever the circumstances, Paul makes it very clear there. You know, the, the troubles, the situations that we go through in life, whatever those things, we're to serve, we're to love, we're to be faithful. Chapter 7, we just see a, a reference there of the comfort that there is in fellowship. In chapter 8, we were given another model of giving and how the church there would be encouraged to give and to be cheerful givers. It goes on into chapter 9. You know, when we give, it shouldn't be begrudgingly. You know, I, in this church, I really don't want anybody to give. And I'm not just talking money. I'm talking about anything of your time or your skills, your gifts. If you don't want to, don't do it. Because the only reason you should give is because you're doing it because you love the Lord. But if you do give... In whatever way. And I'm not just talking about money. I'm talking about your gifts, your ministries, whatever abilities God has given you. If you choose to give, please be faithful. Please be consistent in that. Chapter 10. We're reminded of our warfare. You know, we're not fighting flesh and blood. We're told, of course, that... We'll look at that next week briefly. But our warfare is for bringing down the things that have exalted themselves against the knowledge of God. Things, the philosophies of this world, the wisdom of this world, that's exalted itself against the knowledge of God. The things that would stop us thinking about godly things, that would change our understanding. That's where spiritual warfare really is at. And it's within the minds of believers. It's not these angelic beings, these principalities and powers that rule over cities and nations. All that. That's none of our business. Leave that aside. Let God deal with that. Our spiritual warfare, that which we are told to engage in, is that which is in the mind. And we're told that our minds, as we saw in Romans last week, should be transformed. In chapter 11, Paul highlights that there are deceitful workers. People that would come and, even within a body of believers, attack, try and pull down. In chapter 12, Paul reminds us that sometimes God will allow things that are unpleasant, that are uncomfortable, for his purpose. It's like, Lord, I'm in this mess. Where are you? The Lord's saying, I'm right here. Lord, why have you allowed this? Because this is what you need. But Lord, I don't understand. You will. And eventually, in the fullness of time, we will look back and we'll see why God allowed us to go through the challenges and the things we went through. But God is always there with us. He'll never allow us to be tempted beyond that which we are able. And then finally, we're told to examine ourselves. Let's just turn... In closing, to chapter 13 of 2 Corinthians together. Paul says in uh, chapter 13 of 2 Corinthians and verse 5, Examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. What a challenge for everybody here this morning. Are you in the faith? Are you born again? Do you really truly know that? And if you are in any way uncertain, I would challenge you and I'd say you're probably not saved. 
Because if you are saved, you know you are saved. And we are told in scripture that we have the assurance of God's Holy Spirit. This is a great verse because every Christian should come to this and go, yes, I know I am saved. I have that witness, that testimony in my heart through the Holy Spirit. There's no doubt it's a good challenge for us. And so we close this morning, as Paul does this letter to the second, or second letter to the Corinthians that we have recorded for us in verse 14, which says, let's just read this together. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen. May God bless you.